Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Episode 350, the pandemic series with Ed Baker. Welcome to the pursuit of the perfect race. I'm Coach Terry Wilson, and with each episode, I bring stories of athletes to you that share their experiences at races in order for you to learn how to have your perfect race. We'll hear stories from athletes of all ages, abilities, and races of all distances. So regardless of where you fit in, there's something in there for you. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the pursuit begin. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Pursuit of the Perfect Race. I'm continuing the pandemic series with my friend Ed Baker. Ed has not only won a few triathlons, but he is also phenomenal with understanding numbers, data metrics, and research. I'm thankful for your time today, Ed. I look forward to this conversation. Thanks for having me, Terry. Good to be here. Yeah. So uh, how have you been since we talked last time? I know you went to Kona. didn't have a great day there, but you're still getting back on the saddle, right? Um, I am. I I took the last year pretty much off from training after I got in a, a pretty bad bike accident um, almost exactly a year ago. Um, but just uh, a month ago, I turned 41 and um, I guess I just decided it's time to get back into shape. So for the past month, I've been getting back onto Zwift, doing some riding and running, and uh, it feels good to be getting back into shape. Wow. Well, that's good. I know I'm still charging away with all my training, even though my big race was officially canceled today at the Comrades Marathon, and uh, I won't be going down to South Africa this year. So there's that. Oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah. yeah. Lots of races have been canceled oh, <laughs> recently. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, uh, let's just get into the fun stuff, you know. Um, okay. The foundation of the conversation, though, it's uh, before we really get into the weeds of it all, just establish the last 20 years of your work and what you've coined the viral growth of data metrics. What does this really mean? Sure. So it's crazy to think it has been about 20 years. Um, back when I was in college as a sophomore, back in 1999, I built my first website called datesite.com. And it was basically a crush site, like an old school Tinder type thing, where instead of swiping photos left and right, you'd put in email addresses of people you had a crush on. They'd get an email saying, somebody likes you, go to datesite.com to find out who. And then they had to put an email address of people they liked. And if the crush was mutual, it would let both people know, hey, you've got a match. Uh, so launch that on... Valentine's Day of 1999 back at um, Harvard College and within a week a quarter of the students were had signed up and started using it and then we launched at some other schools as well and, and same kind of thing it just blew up and grew exponentially or virally and um, you know I was really intrigued by what is it that causes something like this to grow virally um, and, and so quickly and I was, I was studying physics at the time in college, um, but that was really my first um, experiment of building something on the internet that started with just, you know, the first couple of users 
that then just started to compound and grow and uh, rapidly uh, spread to, um, you know, in that in that case, thousands, tens of thousands of users. Um, so, you know, that was, again, over, over 20 years ago. But um, since then, I kind of um, spent time working on coming up with a, a viral growth framework um, that I used with other websites that I built, um, as well as when I was at Facebook and then later at Uber, uh, running the growth team there. Um, kind of kept iterating on this framework, but always... Uh, kind of um, thinking about how do we make things grow um, using a very mathematical metrics driven approach. Okay. So that kind of leads into my next question of the R not with in relation to COVID-19 for people that don't understand what the R not factor or the K factor is, what is that and how do people need to understand what that is? Right. So that's probably, I mean, that is the most important metric when it comes to viral growth. And, uh, you know, I always referred to it as the K factor when I was building websites or apps. Um, epidemiologists refer to it as R naught. It's really the same thing. And basically what it means is for each person who, in the case of a virus, gets infected, uh, how many more people do they infect? So if the R naught is two, that means on average, um, any person who gets infected then infects two other people. And those two people then each infect two, so that gets you to four, and then four goes to eight, to 16, and so on. Um, with most of the websites and apps that I, I've built in the past, uh, it would be rare to get the K factor much above you know, 1.4 or 1.5. I mean, at those kinds of levels, it was already super viral. I built an app one time called Send Hotness, um, which was a Facebook app that grew from zero to five million users in five weeks. And the K factor was 1.4. So that just gives you a sense of how sensitive it is around that number of one. If it's less than one, you don't see any growth at all. Um, but all you have to do is get a little bit above one and then you see very rapid growth. Um, now the, the other thing that matters is the kind of the cycle time. How long does it take between the time someone signs up to the time they get their friend to sign up? So in the case of an app, it might be less than 24 hours. In the case of an actual virus, um, like COVID-19, it might, it, it might take days or over a week. Um, so that can also impact the how long the growth takes. But I think the most important metric is is that um, R0 or K factor. All right. Now, uh, let's just kind of do a little bit of a timeline here. The 25th of January, I feel like, is an important date for the world, and that's the day before Kobe Bryant was killed, unfortunately. And that is when the CDC of China posted an article regarding what they thought about the R not factor of the virus, and you read that, right? Uh, I I think I did. I, I remember seeing several different um, estimates of what the R not might be, and I mean, even today, people don't actually know precisely what it is. But I I think back then, I remember seeing um, estimates that it was 
above two and potentially even above three. Um, I think I saw a range like 2.6 to 3.8. And, you know, like I was saying before, anything above really anything above like 1.4, I had always thought was super viral and you'd never really see K factors above two when it came to things on the consumer internet. So to, to have this virus that um, conservatively was maybe a 2.6, but potentially as high as a 3.8, um, that that was the first time I really got concerned and thought this thing has the potential to be bigger than, than anything we've seen before. Right. I mean, because you posted on January 26th, I'm just going to read from there there, if the RO is truly as high as some scientists are reporting, 2.6 to 3.8, I'm afraid it will be impossible to contain and could poten- potentially become a pandemic bigger than any of us have ever seen. I hope the CDC is correct, but is anyone else very worried right now? Like, <laughs> January 26th, and here we are in May going, looking back, going, wow, okay, you really said that back then, like... How does that change how you think about the virus now? Um, well, I, I guess the good news is I think um, people now, pretty much everyone in the world is now aware of this virus and um, I think is taking it seriously. Uh, part of the reason I posted back then was I, um, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist or, or a doctor or anything like that. I just have been thinking about viral growth as it applies to cons- the consumer internet for the past couple of decades. So um, just kind of thinking about it from that perspective, I I was concerned, but I, I shared it on Facebook with all my friends just to see, I, I kind of wanted to gauge how other people were feeling at that time. Um, so, you know, I, I think I, I just pattern matched based on things I had done in the past on the internet um, I think maybe, um, you know, we the world hasn't seen a, a virus like this since um, 1918, and most of us weren't alive back then. I don't probably none of the epidemiologists working today experienced what happened in 1918. So it, it might actually, in a, in a strange way, be more difficult for epidemiologists to pattern match something like this than for people working on internet. Uh, sites that can grow to millions of users very quickly. All right. So kind of along those lines, do you feel like, I mean, just from the way I see it, and I don't know if you agree or disagree, you can do whatever, but I feel like the response of the government and how they handle things could have been better? I, I think, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. so I, I agree that, things I, I think could have been done um, better um, but back then it was so hard to know and like I was saying before um, a lot of it comes comes back to pattern matching I think and unfortunately I just think a lot of people um, uh, in positions of influence just had nothing to pattern match this with um, though it, it is interesting to see what some countries like Taiwan for example uh, they they were on top of this right away and um, have successfully contained the, the virus since then. Um, so I think in the past 30 days, there have been zero deaths in Taiwan. 
uh, from COVID-19. They pretty much have everything under control. Um, but they do rigorous um, testing, uh, contact tracing, uh, isolation, quarantines. If you want to go to Taiwan, you have to first spend two weeks in quarantine before you um, can leave your home. And they actually like, they call you once or twice every day to make sure you haven't left your home. If you don't answer your phone, uh, you can get in trouble. <laughs> um, and they're looking at the the phone GPS and everything too to make sure that that phone, phone is at your house. So they don't mess around. They take it really seriously. Um, so it's, you know, I think it'd be a lot more difficult for a large, larger country like, like the United States to do that. And unfortunately, it's it's now such a large epidemic here that I think it's going to be hard to get the numbers down to the levels they would need to be to do that kind of thing, at least any time in the near future. Wow. So, so do they also have like the passport as well, like a digital passport of something like that as well? Um, you know, I, I don't know about special passports that they have, but um, I think they, I think these days they've closed down their borders to pretty much everyone else in the rest of the world um, in order to uh, keep keep COVID-19 out. The problem is it's now really so prevalent everywhere in the world that if you want to keep your country um, free of the virus, you really have to shut down your borders to most of the rest of the world. Wow. So um, I'm drawing a blank here. Um, I know on one of the articles that you said on that you put on Medium that there's really only two choices. We can really rather just destroy the economy because we're going to have to shut down for 12 to 18 months, which is going to be hard, or let people go back to work, which would cause fatalities. And it's like this this balance of what's the right thing to do versus what's wrong. And I listened to a thing by NPR, I think I sent you, that it basically puts the value of every person's life at around $10 million. Um so do you feel like that's still um, the only two choices we really have? Yeah, so I, I think I think you're referring to the Medium post I wrote about uh, the importance of face masks. And um, that, was, that was back in March. I think I started out the post saying, look, uh, we kind of have these two bad choices to choose between, either – we shut down the economy until there's a vaccine, which is at least 12 months away, or we go back to work and, and a lot of people die. Um, but actually, the point I then tried to make in that in that post is actually that those aren't our only two options. Um, and I think that face masks could potentially be uh, the, I think I call it the silver bullet to um, reducing transmission of COVID-19 so that we actually could get that R not below one um, and allow people to return to work without um, without the thing continuing to grow virally. But in order for that to work, everyone has to wear face masks. It's not enough if um, even if just like 50% of the population wears face masks. You really need like as close as possible to 100%. We'll never get exactly to 100%, but you need over 80%, I think, for the numbers to work. Um, 
because, and, and the reason it's so important that you get everyone wearing face masks is with this virus in particular, um, you, a lot of people are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic. So they're, they're contagious, but they don't even feel sick. So um, if you only wear a face mask, if you think you're sick, that's not enough, uh, since so many people out there are sick before they realize it and contagious. But if everyone wears face masks, um, then the people that are sick and don't realize it are much less likely to infect other people. And they don't even have to be like a special N95 mask. They can be um, cotton mask, and they've done studies to show you know different materials, how much do they cut down on transmission um, of droplets that as basically when you breathe, you can exhale droplets and even cotton reduces transmission by something like 70%. And if two people, if, if you're wearing a cotton mask and the person next to you is also wearing a cotton mask, it's reduced 60% two times, which is effectively, if you do the math, like a 90% reduction. And if you can reduce transmission by 90%, that means you're also going to reduce your R that are not that we were talking about that also can be reduced by 90% because that's directly proportional to the transmission. Wow. So, sorry, that was a bit of a long explanation for why face masks, I think are so critical and uh, back to places like Taiwan, which we were just talking about um, everyone there wears face masks. And so um, to answer your question, I don't think our only two options are, shut down the economy for the next year or let tons more people die. I think if we really were able to get everyone in this country to wear face masks anytime they leave their home, um, I actually think that would allow us to reopen and see the numbers continue to decline. Wow. So I know there's still a lot of people that don't believe in it and don't want to wear masks. How can we get them to buy into it? Well, I think um, part of it is just educating people on how important it is. And, and that's part of the reason, you know, I, I wrote that Medium post um, and others out there are sharing, um, you know, as, as much as they can to just educate other people. They're also, you know, I, I shared one post on Facebook. I'm not sure if you saw it that I thought was kind of a funny the pants. Uh, analogy about pants yep. and, and, pee, and peeing. It's like, if everyone were outside not wearing pants um, and peeing on each other, yeah, everyone else would get pee on them. And if you wear pants and someone pees on you, you might not get quite as much pee on your leg. But if the person peeing wears pants, you're definitely not going to get pee on your leg. So I think just kind of using funny analogies like that can help get the point across. Um, but I think the other thing that I, I really hope we start to see more of is um, – the leaders of this country leading by example and wearing face masks themselves. Um, I, I think that's that's important, and um, I I hope that we can see more of that going forward. I hope so as well. So um, along the same lines as the Medium post that you mentioned, uh, within that post you said that you know by late May that we would be around a hundred million cases if it was multiplying at that level and we're 
I think, uh, let me see here, we're at just over 1.3, about 1.4 million cases in America right now. Um, So we've obviously done something to flatten it based on the curve that was, uh, or not curve, but the metrics, you know. So do you think it's due to the mask or do you think it's due to the basically a, a national shutdown? What do you think that's actually a lead to? Sure. Um, so a couple of things. I think uh, I think in that post, I, I was basically just doing very simple math saying if um, the number of infected people doubles every five days, which was the best estimate we had back then, um, we could see millions of people infected by the end of April and possibly over 100 million infected by the end of May. Um, and... First of all, I do think a lot of the things that are being have been done over the past few months have reduced transmission versus the worst case scenario. So asking people to stay in their homes, having more people wear masks, more than zero at least, um, those types of things definitely help. Um, however, you know, uh, the the number I think you you just stated of uh, I think the latest number of diagnosed cases at around 1.3 million, that's just um, the number of people who've been tested that have tested positive. And I think um, it's widely accepted that there could easily be, you know, 10 times as many people that actually have been infected in this country because we've just tested such a small percentage of of people in this country. We, We only up until recently have been testing people that have pretty serious symptoms. Um, so if we have one point, if the official number is 1.3 million, I think it, it would be pretty easy to say that the actual number is, um, you know, over, potentially as high as, as 10 million. Uh, another way to think about that actually is if you look at fatalities, um, there've been 82,000 reported fatalities in this country. And again, that, that might be an understated underestimate um, because they're saying there may be a lot of deaths that have been due to COVID that haven't been um, counted in that number. But even if you say the number is 82,000 and you assume that around 1% of people who get infected end up dying, which I think is the, approximately where most people think it will, it will end up somewhere between maybe half a percent and one and a half or two percent. So let's just say 1%. Then 82,000 deaths implies 8.2 million infections to just make that math work. Um, and if you think that death number is undercounted and maybe it's closer to a hundred thousand, then that would get you to, um, 10 million infections in this country. Uh, using that simple math of of one percent. So more does that make sense? Yeah. So more importantly, people should wear masks because there's probably a lot more people out there that don't know they even have it. And exactly. Oh yeah. I mean, so if it, even if we're kind of order of magnitude right, that ten million people in this country have been infected. Um, that's already like a there's a good chance you're going to run into someone who is infected if you're just out on the street. Um, so, uh, and, and there's a chance you might be infected and not even realize it. So uh, I, I think it's really important that 
everyone wears masks anytime they might um, be uh, close to someone else, you know, whether it's within six feet or, or really within 10 or 15 feet, um, it's important to have that mask on. Yeah. Do you think the one-way grocery stores and uh, the plexiglass at grocery stores, you think all those are help, helping AIDS as well? Um, I, I think, I think every, everything people are doing to, um, to reduce transmission is going to help. And we still don't know how much, um, how often are people getting the virus through respiratory transmission, you know, because I, I inhale some droplets that someone else exhaled versus I touch a surface that someone else touched and then I touch my face. Um, there are lots of different ways, um, to, to basically, um, become infected. And, and I don't think anyone knows exactly which of those ways are most common. So I think everything, everything we're doing from wiping down and cleaning surfaces to wearing masks to wearing gloves. And I mean, all of that helps, but we should just, we should be doing all of it just to be extra safe. Okay. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about herd immunity. Uh, before we really get into the details of it, what is this uh, term and what is it really referring to? So herd immunity basically just means you get to a level um, of infection in a population where enough people have already become, already been infected and recovered so, or you basically get the R down to the effective R down to one instead of 2.6 or 3.8 or whatever it is. Um, and depending on R not, um, depending on where that R not starts, that actually, um, is, is what you use to figure out the rough percentage of the population you need before you get to herd immunity. So if the R is really high, you need a much higher percentage of the population to um, to have the virus and then become immune versus if the R is low. The problem with the, the estimates of R0 um, for COVID-19, because they're so high, um, the estimates I've heard of, you know, at what point would we get to herd immunity are kind of in that 70% range. Um, so... And, and, oh, I should have mentioned the one other big assumption here is that um, once you get infected and recover, you become immune. And um, I don't think anyone has actually proven that yet. I think it's a, a safe assumption to make. At least there's some partial immunity for some period of time. Um, but... Uh, we don't know how long that immunity lasts. It's possible that it might only last a few months and then it would be possible to get reinfected. This virus is so, so new that none of us know what happens a year later because the virus hasn't existed for a year yet. It's only been around for about six months. Um, so anyway, back to herd immunity, you'd have to have even if you assume people do become immune after they recover from COVID-19, which hopefully is true, 
you'd still need a very large percentage of the U.S. population to be infected before you get to herd immunity. You'd have over half of, over half the people in the country would have to have had it. Um, so one out of every two. And I mean, if, if that's the case, so we have roughly 330 million people. So one yeah. out of every two. So you're saying basically 157 million people would have to have it. So now that 157 million times even just that 1% number, you're looking at one yeah, and a half that's million. One and a half million. That's right. To, to die. And right. That's a large number of people dying. That's right. So I don't think herd immunity is a strategy that makes sense. Um, I mean, there are some people that say, well, you know what? The actual number of infections, we, which we were talking about earlier on this podcast, um, the reported number is 1.3 million. I know we were saying it, you know, it could easily be somewhere more like 10 million. Some people are saying, oh, maybe it's like actually already at 50 million or 100 million in this country. Maybe so many of us have it and we were just asymptomatic and don't realize it. Um, so maybe the fatality rate's not 1%, but 0.1%. And um, we're already close to herd immunity. So there are some people that I, I think optimistically we're, we're hoping that we're closer to herd immunity than I think we are. Um, there've been some antibody tests done in different um, parts of the country to try to show how many people um, have had the virus and recovered. I think I saw in New York, um, in New York City, the last number I saw was somewhere around 20% of people tested in a small group had antibodies. And I think in the state more broadly, it was maybe like 13% or something like that. Um, so, and that's in one of the hardest hit parts of our country. Um, even if those numbers are right, it means we'd still have to go through what's happened in New York like three more times um, or four more times uh, before we get to get even close to herd immunity. So uh, just to me, that feels like it's not it's it's not the right strategy. I can see that, and I agree with that because the numbers just don't. From what I know of how to look at the numbers and crunch the numbers, so to speak, it's not a good option to even consider. Right. Oh, and the other thing I should mention is once you're at herd immunity, it doesn't mean no one gets sick anymore. It just means it levels off at a lower level and kind of a steady rate. So it, it just it means the virus at that point is endemic, and there's always going to be some small percentage of the population getting infected. And this is, I, I, again, I'm not an epidemiologist, but my understanding is that as the way you determine what, how many people are getting it every month when something's endemic has to do with things like um, how many people are being born in that country every year. And so therefore you're introducing new people who haven't yet been exposed and you've got to like, figure out how do you maintain that equilibrium where you have just enough of the population that's immune so that it doesn't start to um, uh, grow exponentially again. Okay. So what do you really wish people would know about the pandemic and COVID-19 
that you think they don't already know? Well, there are two things I don't yet know that I would love to know. And I'm not sure if anyone knows these things yet, but maybe I'll start with that. Um, one is actually what we were just talking about. Is it possible to get reinfected once you've had it once and then be um, recovered? Can you get infected again? And there have been some reports, I think, out of China, Japan, and South Korea, where um, people have said some some people have tested positive, then recovered, tested negative, and then later tested positive again. And they've um, said maybe these people have gotten reinfected, but then they said, well, actually, maybe it just is that the, the tests were faulty and, and there was a, a false negative in there. They never fully recovered. Um, so I think we don't yet know um, if reinfection is possible. Uh, hopefully it's not because I, my understanding is if you can get reinfected, that also has implications um, with regards to the vaccine and that if, if it's hard to become immune once you've recovered, that makes a vaccine harder as well uh, to come up with. Second big question I have um, that I don't think anyone knows the answer to yet is are there any long-term consequences to having been infected with COVID-19, even after you recover. And I'm particularly uh, concerned that if there are, that could be a big problem, um, for example, with children. Um, fortunately, most children seem to not have any symptoms at all. Um, although I guess there are now more reports of um, some children, especially in New York, who um, are having different kinds of symptoms that look like they may be related to COVID-19. Um, but this is another reason, by the way, that I think herd immunity is a dangerous strategy is we just don't know if um, years from now, the fact that you are infected with COVID-19 might cause other types of problems in the future. So, I mean, I read this thing the other day that it's basically like if you get chicken pox whenever you're a kid, you might get shingles later. And uh, comparing right. that to this with an unknown. Right, exactly. So I think we just don't know. Um, and this is also outside of my area of expertise, so I have no clue. But um, I'd rather, rather be safe than sorry. Um, so I think um, it's, it's better to assume that um, that is better not to get infected with COVID, with the virus at this point in time. Right. So uh, just to kind of move along here and kind of think about the short-term future, the next three to six months and the rest of the year, what do you think this is going to look like for big events, concerts, gatherings, picnics, class reunions, um, like anything, do you think anything yeah. is going to happen? I know you're an athlete, so you think any Ironman races might happen or marathons or anything like that? Right. You know, um, I think until there's a vaccine, it just is not going to make sense to have any kind of large event that, that um, brings a lot of people together and um, kind of uh, – kind of close together. So um, 
because this virus is not going away. Uh, no matter what we do, it's not just going to disappear. Um, once there's a vaccine and once everyone can um, be vaccinated, then at that point, I think we can go back to um, a life that much more resembles what our lives were like before COVID-19. But I think um, even the most aggressive estimates are that maybe there will be some sort of vaccine by the end of this year, but then it takes some time um, to actually produce that and distribute that. So, um, and production I'm kind of, of a, and like from, sorry to interrupt you from yeah. the, from my view, it's like, not only do you have to find something that's reasonable, that's step one, find yeah. the actual vaccine that works. Two is produce enough for the entire country for free. And yes. Then everyone has to get the vaccine for it to right. work. And, and then it's not just the entire country, it's really the entire world, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, and I know there are a lot of really smart people with lots of resources working on this. So the good news is we, like, all of the best people in the world to be working on solving this problem are doing exactly that right now. So I, th- I think we're going to see things happen um, in timelines like we've never seen before. Um, but, you know, there, there's the question, like, whoever comes up with the vaccine first, how are they going to decide or, or who's going to decide and how's the government going to decide um, who gets the vaccines first, um, which countries get access to it? Um, how do you how do you get uh, seven billion vaccines um, distributed around the world? So I. Uh, I guess that's a long way of saying um, I don't think we're going to get there this year. (laughs) And I'm kind of assuming we've got at least another uh, 12 to 18 months where um, we just are, we're going to have to change the way we do things. And um, it, it it could even not be until 2022 that um, we can really go back to, life the way it used to be but i do think again going back to things like face masks there are things like that we can do in the meantime that i think can significantly reduce transmission of the virus um so that we can hopefully go back to um a slightly modified way of living um doing a lot more zoom calls and and things like that and maybe i don't know what it means for things like iron man races um it may be a while before we can do any of those in person again, but you know, there's some of these virtual challenges on Zwift and things like that. So I I think we're just going to have to figure out a a new way of doing things over the next uh, couple of years. Right. I know uh, the big thing is the economic impact of how this is going to impact businesses because of revenue and loss of jobs and things like that. I mean, I think I've already seen, two people I know post things on Facebook or somewhere where hey their business went out of business and they don't have a job anymore I think it's going to put strains on the economy for sure definitely I mean I think this is um, and even even after we do have a vaccine and people are vaccinated I think um, it's going to take a while for our economy to recover from all of this Um, 
this is a pretty major disruption, uh, you know, in so many ways. Um, so, but I, I'm optimistic that we'll get through it. And, um, I think there are a lot of things that, um, I think there are good things that will ultimately come out of this as well. I do too. Uh, so kind of looking like in the long term, 10, 15, 20 years from now, we're both hopefully going to be alive. You know, when we look back on this year, hopefully I'll have my podcast up and we can go and just have some laughs <laughs> listening to this one. But um, what do you think are some things that we'll actually learn from this and continue doing regardless after the pandemic? Sure. So, uh well, I think one one good thing that I, I believe will come out of all of this is we are going to be much more prepared next time uh, when the next pandemic hits, because I, I think, unfortunately, it's not a question of if, but when. Um, and so everything we're doing now and learning from, uh, I think will better prepare us next time around. And I, by the way, I think that's part of the reason countries like um, Taiwan and China and Hong Kong um, were able to react a bit more aggressively um, when this virus first hit. Um, second thing is I, I think, um, you know, we're all learning how to do work remotely and doing a lot more Zoom calls, video conferences, things like that. I bet you that these habits will continue even once we're able to start meeting in person and traveling more. So, um, and I think that will just allow us to be more efficient with our time. You know, we'll still have like meetings in person, but I think um, we'll we'll do those. And sorry, you probably hear my five-year-old in the background right now. <laughs> okay. Um, sounds like he's he's playing with our chinchillas. Um, but uh, I was just going to say, I think a lot of the stuff we're doing remotely now will say, you know what, that was actually a more efficient way to get work done. Um, I'm going to keep half of my meetings going forward remote, and I'm not going to hop on airplanes as much because I can get even, I can be even more productive from home. Um, I don't need to go back into the office every day. Maybe I'll go in the off, into the office like a few times a week, but work from home a few times a week. I saw Twitter uh, announced that they're going to allow a lot of their employees to work from home forever. Um, so I, I think we're going to see changes like that, which will just um, allow people to be more flexible about how they do things and ultimately just do things more efficiently. So I, I think that that will be a good thing too. I think uh, with that, with everybody being able to work from home more, I think that's going to increase the uh, meaning of family to so many people that weren't able to have that family life that they wanted, mm -hmm. and now they'll be able to have that. I think that's right, for sure. And so uh, let's just kind of zoom out of, of all this pandemic stuff and talk about you. How has this impacted you so far? Uh, you know, I, I – I guess the biggest impact has just been that I have four young kids at home every day now, and my wife and I are doing our best to um, try to maintain some sort of daily schedule, and um, three of them are in elementary school, and we're trying to just get them to do their work every day. So um, 
the biggest impact has just been kind of in that day-to-day routine has has changed quite a bit. Um, but it's also, I think, brought us together um, more than more than ever before. Kind of like what you were just saying, like when you're s- stuck in your house with the rest of your family, you're going to spend more time with your family, and so uh, so that has been nice. And then um, I've also over the past month enjoyed getting back onto Zwift and doing a lot of training indoors, and uh, I just uh, feel fortunate that I'm able to get these workouts in um, while I'm staying at home. Um, that's helped keep me sane. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, going on from here, um, how's your mental health? Have you been, have you struggled with any, uh, bad moods or anything because of having to not be the normal life that you were used to before January? Oh, for sure. I mean, I've had, I've had a bunch of ups and downs, um, over these past few months, as I'm sure most people have. Um, but then I just have to remind myself that, um, I, I, I'm just so fortunate that I can be at home safe with my family. We're all healthy. Um, you know, at times we, we might complain about being stuck at home and various things, but at the end of the day, we're, we're healthy and we're going to get through this. So, um, when I'm feeling down, I just remind myself of that. And, uh, and that plus exercise plus trying to get, uh, enough sleep. I feel like that's kind of what gets me through all of this. Do you have a good routine that you're in right now where you wake up at a certain time, get up, have some time alone or to meditate or anything, and then just go through a normal daily routine? Yeah. You know, my, I've, I've gotten, I've gotten to a routine that's, uh, that feels pretty good for me. So I basically wake up and first thing I do is I, I hop on Zwift and just get my workout in before breakfast. Then, uh, have breakfast, um, check in with the kids and the, the homeschooling stuff. And then, um, and then just get some work done, uh, basically working for the rest of the day until dinner time. And then, um, kind of the last thing before going to bed, after we put the kids to bed, my wife and I will watch an episode of something on Netflix. <laughs> and, uh, that's kind of like how we, we end the day. That's our wind down time. So what are y'all so, watching right now? Um, we are, uh, actually tonight will be the final episode of season three of Ozark. Is have you good? seen Ozark? I have not yet. I've heard a bunch of good things. About it's, it. uh, it's a crazy series, but it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> um, my friend who recommended it to me said, watch the first two episodes. And after the first two, if you are liking it, you're going to really like it. If you're not, you should just like, just stop there. So I think it, some people love it. Some people hate it, but we've, uh, it's, it's been uh, pretty interesting. <laughs> Okay, well, so, we'll have to give that a shot. We'll have to yeah. look at that. Um, so what about groceries and food? Have you been able to find everything that you need with in regards to food and supplies that you want? Um, for the most part, we have. You know, uh, we, we've been doing um, basically grocery deliveries, and 
Uh, a lot of times there will be substitutions because things aren't in stock. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we've been able to make it work. That's good. So, uh, before we wrap up here, um, yesterday, if you think about yesterday, what I normally ask, what's your definition of the perfect race to kind of wrap things up, but, uh, to wrap this up, if you think about yesterday, what was your favorite part about yesterday? Ooh, my favorite part about yesterday. Um, I need to remember what I did yesterday. Uh, because, you know, these days kind of blend together, um, these days. Uh, oh, you know what it was? Um, so the, the school that my kids go to, um, every year in May, they have something called a May Day ceremony. And usually it's at the school out on the lawn and all the different grades have, have different kind of dances and acts that they do. Um, we did a virtual May Day ceremony with their school yesterday. And um, I thought it was it was really well done, given that it was all on Zoom. <laughs> um, but you know, like our kids were dancing in the house, and we were connected with other families on Zoom, and um, it was nice. So it's awesome, man. Yeah. So uh, how can people follow you? Oh, sure. So um, let's see on Instagram. I'm just, uh, at uber.ed.baker. Um, so that's probably the best way. Um, then I mentioned medium. Um, really, if you just Google my name and medium, you'll find my, my medium post, but my, my medium name is ES Baker. Okay, cool. Well, Ed, I really appreciate your time today. I've enjoyed this conversation and I really look forward to following you in the future and I'm really thankful for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Terry. I I appreciate you taking the time to interview me today. You're welcome. You have a great day, okay? Okay, you too. Thanks for tuning in today. I hope you were able to learn something from today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please take a minute to leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to see pictures from this athlete's race, learn more about who I am, what I'm doing, or be on the show yourself to share your story, check out my website at CoachTerryWilson.com. Until next time, continue the pursuit.